You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. For Bill Whitney. I've never been paranoid. Fear plays a large part in family life. I feel like something's going to happen. And if I scratch the surface, there'll be something terrible underneath. He's afraid his sister. Could you zip me up, Billy? Is not what she seems. He thinks his friends are out to get him. Make waves with you. You're going to drown. People are what they are. Now you have to learn to accept that. He's about to find out the truth. (laughs) Why why are you guys doing this to me, huh? What, you've been living with these people all your life and you don't know anything about this? It's far worse than he could ever imagine. If you don't follow the rules, Billy, bad things happen. Didn't you know, Billy boy? The rich have all sucked off low-class scum like you. Uh-oh, guy. Clarissa? Don't be so intense. Now, some people make the rules, and some people follow the rules. It's a question of what you're born to. You never were one of us. You know, you really deserve what's going to happen to you. I don't think so. Can't you see they're setting you up for something? You know how I hate to give you drugs. You're officially dead. Don't go home, Billy. No, 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 no. Bill Whitney is about to become one. Showtime, Billy! With society. (laughs) Who are you? Let me give you a hand, Bill. (laughs) In Beverly Hills... What you fear is only the beginning. Anything for society. (laughs) Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jay Bowman. Cream, sugar, or do you want me to pee in it? Also back in the booth is Mr. Terry Frost. I drink my black bite. This week we are looking at the 1989 film from director Brian Usna, Society. The film stars Billy Warlock as Bill Whitney, a suburban teen who feels that things are amiss in his life. I'm keeping the description very brief as we're going to be spoiling things almost right off the bat. So go no further if you haven't seen Society before. Jay, when was the first time you saw Society and what did you think? I saw it for the first time when I was 11 or 12. Uh, (laughs) It was was on cable one night. Uh, I think I missed the very beginning, so I wasn't even sure what it was. I'd already seen the movie Parents, the Bob Balaban movie, and I was getting Parents vibes from it, uh, the, that kind of paranoia and sort of isolation from your own family. And then it got to the moment where he goes into the sister – it goes into the bathroom when the sister is showering and, like, her upper torso is backwards. And I think I, I think I lost my mind. And then, you know, the movie continues and it gets weirder. And by the time it got to the end with all the Play-Doh people, like at that point, I was really into like makeup effects and creature effects. So I think I was too fascinated by like how creative and and inventive the uh, the effects were to really sink in just how fucked up it all was. And that I probably shouldn't be watching it at 11 years old. But I, I, I mean, I was just fascinated by it. And then it was like impossible to find years after that. I would be telling people about this crazy movie. But I, I just like I, I think they're might have been like a small dvd release but 
uh, up until the recent Arrow Blu-ray, it was just impossible to get a hold of. So I'd be telling people about this movie and I wasn't able to show it. But but now, thankfully, it's it's much more readily available. But I've I've always loved it. It's kind of clunky and it has problems, like especially in the middle. Uh, there's some pacing issues, but it, it definitely makes up more than makes up for it with the ending. It's a it's a very uh, sinister film with a very innocuous title. How about you, Terry? I first saw it on VHS back in the day when you used to go to places to actually get movies rather than have them come to you. So one of the things Australian video companies did was they tried to get things that were fairly low to buy, low cost to buy. And so they'd pick up all of the um, Usner stuff. They'd pick up Reanimator and anything that had a really weird cover would sell in a video store. So I picked up Society because of that cover with the masks and the stretchy skin on them and uh, watched it. And I'd already seen, I think I'd already seen Reanimator at that time. So I was pretty much prepared for over-the-top and really comical uh, visual effects. And so I just went into it. I'd already been pre-positioned being a working-class boy to know that rich people are bastards. I kind of ran with it and I went, yeah, this is cool. And it's got a gross-out ending. It starts out a bit... 90210 meets some other weird movie and then suddenly it goes totally off the rails and goes into this salvador dali thing that screaming mad george did with the special effects and i loved it i saw this one for the first time geez probably only about a year ago uh, i got that uh, arrow blu-ray that came out and i had heard about this one i'd seen that cover art for the longest time for whatever reason, I just never checked it out and was completely blown away by the release and was really, really excited to finally be able to see this movie. Yeah, I can see why this has such a long uh, history and is such a favorite film by so many people. It is a delightful little film, and it just gets better every time that i watch it i see more and more of the cleverness of the writing of it as we you know as i see this multiple times i mean it's not like uh you know like a puzzle film or something where you know every time i'm uncovering a new layer but it's really nice to be able to put these pieces together a little bit more every single time that i see it and uh yeah i really did get that 90210 vibe as well when i was first starting to watch this and at first i was like where are we going with this? I'm not exactly sure because the acting could be a little bit better. Some of the line delivery, some of the lines themselves. But I think that that kind of clunkiness actually works in this movie's favor because it feels like we're dealing with more with symbols than we actually are with, with people and with characters. I always felt like the acting was deliberate. The, it's it's just heightened, like just a tiny bit where every, everything feels completely phony, which certainly ties in with, you know, nothing being what it seems. And you had mentioned... Uh, uh, like 90210, it always kind of reminded me of like a soap opera, and that includes the acting. It just, just, just heightened, just a tiny bit where it's not realistic. Yeah, Billy Warlock, who stars in the movie, came out of Baywatch, which was another one of those shows not known for its acting. And uh, I really kind of had the nostalgia thing when I was watching this because half the guys have mullets, and half of the women are dressed in like parachute cloth. So it's that 1980s thing where women's clothing and women's fashion was really, really atrocious. And you can immediately spot a movie from the 1980s because of how atrocious the hair and dresses are. In the, and this movie definitely do, delivers that. Lots of large hair. And and puffy shoulders and, and really weird kind of textiles used to make the clothing with, yeah. Well, you know, the higher the hair, the closer to God. 
I love that Billy Warlock's name is stranger than his actual character name. And I'm going to keep calling him Billy through this, even though I think it's Bill in the film, just because he feels like a Billy as you're watching this movie. Oh, Billy. I guess he's supposed to be really super cool, right? Because he plays basketball. He is one of two candidates up for, like, president of the class or whatever. And it seems like everything is kind of going right for him at the beginning. Like, he's got a cheerleader girlfriend, right? He's living the American dream. But by the end, he gets it all stripped away from him. He wasn't born into the society. That, that's the no. interesting thing. And his character maybe is a little underwritten, but that idea that... You know, he can, you know, have all these advantages. He can be a part of this family, but he wasn't born into it. So he will never really be a part of that world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm um, talking about that. His father in real life was a stuntman called Dick Warlock, which is either his name or a job description. It's pretty obvious right from the start that Billy isn't part of the family. Everybody else is blonde and kind of Aryan looking and he's kind of dark and slightly swarthy looking. So it's pretty obvious right from the get-go, that he was adopted in some way. And I'm just wondering how rich people would have adopted him. Did they select him like a supermarket chicken, or there's a backstory there that would be kind of interesting to look at? Well, and everybody is taller than him as well. I mean, even his sister towers over him. That was Hasselhoff's fault with the Baywatch thing. All the other actors in Baywatch seem to be a lot shorter than David Hasselhoff, and Billy Warlock's definitely not a tall guy. We know that we're in surrealist territory right from the beginning. I mean, this movie opens with the dream sequence. Then we're very early on. We're into a psychiatrist's office where we get Billy hallucinating these worms that are inside this apple. This is a movie that kind of wears its metaphors on its sleeve. I mean, this whole idea of the all-American apple being rotten to the core with all these worms. It kind of reminds me of like the opening of Blue Velvet when we dive under the plush lawn that Jeffrey's father is watering and go down into that insect world. And here we are pretty much diving into that right off the bat in this film and seeing that things aren't necessarily what they seem. But it also is a nice way to tell us maybe Billy isn't all there either because he quickly shakes off that idea of all the worms inside the apple. So it's giving us a nice bit of doubt. I don't know if they play with this as much as maybe they should, but they give us a little bit of doubt here. Is he seeing what he's actually seeing? And we get that a few more times throughout this film so that we doubt whether he is a reliable protagonist or not. That's all you need is a couple little moments like that just scattered throughout to really kind of sell that. But I was I was going to mention Blue Velvet too that opening because much like Blue, the opening of Blue Velvet like it's not subtle there's nothing subtle about the satire of this but the rest <laughs> of the movie is so uh, kind of surreal and absurd that it actually works without feeling it's it's not subtle but it also doesn't feel heavy handed just because the whole movie feels slightly unrealistic character at least is a bit weird because we see Billy being kind of really heavy and um, emotion emotionally torn by these nightmares and by his psychiatrist visit. And the next thing is shooting hoops with his friend, totally fine, totally trying to be charming and fun. And that emotional transition from one scene to the next really doesn't work. Billy's friend Milo, who we get introduced in this basketball scene here, I, ha I have a problem with Milo just that he's not in the movie enough. It feels like he's here in this scene, and then he disappears for a long damn time until he finally shows up again. And it's like, oh yeah, remember me? I'm from that basketball scene in the beginning. And I was like, oh, 
who is this guy again? And then it's unfortunate because you were talking about the mullets, and both of these guys have mullets. So there's a couple times where I actually think that Milo is Billy and Billy is Milo. And I don't think that that is necessarily on purpose. Like, I don't think that they were supposed to be like, you know, doubles of each other or something. Because there was one part, I'm sorry, and I'm jumping way ahead, where Milo is sitting in a vehicle and he's looking at Billy by a house. And then they cut back and I was just like, well, that was a weird transition. How did he get from that Jeep all the way to the house so quickly and then back in the Jeep? And then I realized, oh, these are two different people. Okay. I'm sure it wasn't intentional as far as the casting goes, but it's just all they had to work with in the late 80s. They'd all just looked like that. We're all just going to wear our our sport coats over like a T-shirt or whatever. <laughs> the skinny jeans with basketball boots, yeah. I do like the line in there where Milo is telling Billy what a perfect guy that he is and that he'll probably end up assassinating the president, which was a nice line in 1989. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very nice line now, yeah. And yeah, we're quickly introduced into the family and get to see you know you're talking about how they're all blonde and very perfect for what 1989 was and getting the early uh i mean almost as soon as we get the sister we're getting like incest vibes from this i mean when she's asking billy to zip her up i mean that's almost always like the husband's job to zip up the wife right and here we go, you know, hey, Billy, zip me up. And seeing that close-up of her skin and just how sweaty it looks and then that bulge that comes out, again, it's one of those, like, did we just see that? Did Billy just see that? Or is that just in his imagination? Yeah, they probably could have pushed that even further with, with some of the imagery. Like, I like that there's not too much of it, but it's almost like uh, that moment specifically, like, I... I when I first, like I mentioned, I don't think I saw the very beginning of the movie the first time I saw it. I think I missed that. So the first kind of really bizarre image that I saw was the the bathroom scene where her upper torso is backwards. And so it's like the movie kind of lulls you in up until then. And it just feels like sort of a normal film. And then that happens. Um, so I could have used, yeah, maybe a little bit, a little bit more early on. Yeah. Uh, bathroom scenes are a kind of mainstay of 1980s movies. If you have any movie set in the house sooner or later a young woman is going to have a shower it's it's one of those tropes that was really there but they used it nicely to kind of start the foreshadowing that things aren't wrong even though over the titles of the movie you do see some of the shunting and we'll probably get to the shunting a little bit later but they do foreshadow that in the title sequence we don't know what's going on particularly at that stage uh there's some kind of weird people doing having an orgy or something but later on we kind of backfill our knowledge of that and go, yep, that's the shunting. Yeah, and that shower scene helps sell the incest stuff too, where it's just like, because if it all is in his mind, then he's just like creepily leering at his sister. And her reaction to it feels so genuine too, when she's like, get out of here. Like, it, it, you know, she's hiding what's really happening, you know, pretty well. It's an animal house moment. Yeah. That camera is just lingering on here so long it's just like no get out stop stop looking at me stop you know just like how long is she gonna stay in there while the audience can ogle her while <laughs> she's just like no no quit it really stop why doesn't she shut the door she's too busy covering herself because she didn't want to do actual nudity in the film unlike uh billy's eventual girlfriend uh clarissa but uh yeah we'll, we'll definitely get to her they go back and forth between family and psychiatrist's office quite a bit here and if we haven't already realized that there's an incest theme to this i mean he comes right out and just says like oh yeah just a little incest and psychosis don't worry about it you know it's like okay 
maybe something that the psychiatrist is going to pick up on. Incest and psychosis, that's a great name for an edgy nightclub. This whole idea of the coming out party. Now, I didn't necessarily get this, that had the coming out party happened already, because we're going to get like what I thought was the tape recording of the coming out party, or is that them just talking about the coming out party? No, that's the coming out party, because they're saying that Billy, it's it's a little clunky, but they're saying for whatever reason, Billy Warlock couldn't attend it or something like that. So mm. the, the coming out party is just a giant orgy that Billy wasn't at. Poor Billy misses out on all the fun. And we get to see what a great debater he is. He's almost a master debater here at Beverly Hills Academy. Yeah, sorry, I had to go there. Debating against Marty, who is offset from everybody else in this entire movie by wearing glasses. And I thought that this would come up at some point of him wearing glasses and maybe he wasn't maybe he wasn't part of the society too because he seems to be the only person other than Billy who isn't quote unquote perfect. You know, he's got this mark to him of his his glasses. So I thought, oh okay, yeah, he's gonna be an outsider as well. But that never really comes to fore. But it's interesting, he he just kind of like loves to fuck around with Billy apparently. Well they yeah, they hint at him uh at one point possibly helping Billy, uh, but then it turns out that yeah, he's also a part of the society. So it's yeah, this is kind of messing with the expectations a bit. One of the other interesting things is that beach scene that we get there where he has a breakup with his girlfriend who's monstrous anyway. She's kind of a social climbing, nasty piece of work. And then we get Clarissa basically bukkakiing Billy with the suntan lotion. Just weird sexual imagery at any possible moment mm. in a Brian in a Brian Usner film. Absolutely. And then they cut to the large woman that doesn't seem to talk with all the zinc oxide on her face. We later find out she's Clarissa's mother, but she comes in from left field with no introduction, and we kind of go, well, who the hell is this? That's that's not Divine. That's her name. And the introduction of David Blanchard is great, the way that it seems like he's going to kill Billy's sister at first because he's hiding in the closet, and then he comes bursting out, running down the stairs and out into you know the rest of the world, and this whole thing of like, is he just a absolute creep or is he uh, you know the master of information or who is this guy and i f- always find it hard to believe that he was dating billy's sister because he just seems like the schlubbiest guy in the entire cast like no offense to tim bartell or anything but he just really plays a, a good schlub in this well he did come out of the closet yes yeah, well, he does um, because that's the because that's the opening of the film. Like, I mean, much like what kind of happens with with Bill is that if if all this stuff in, is in his mind, then he's the crazy person. And at the beginning, yeah, with that with uh, what's his name? The the mole guy. Oh, you mean the beauty mark? David Blanchard. Yeah. David Blanchard. Yeah. But like with his character hiding in the closet, like he comes across like a creep, even though as we discover he has the best of intentions. Yeah. He's also got that license plate on his car that says ears. Whereas Billy's uh, Jeep has hoops because he likes playing basketball. He is the auditory spy. Even though he's there in the closet, uh, I would think spying on Jenny, it turns out that he has been bugging her earring. And that's how he ends up getting this tape of the uh, the coming out party and all the fun times that were had there. And that he's finally the guy 
who kind of confirms Billy's, well, he, he doesn't confirm Billy's suspicions. He basically blows the lid off of all this stuff and tells Billy, like, hey, all of these things were going on and, you know, plays this tape for him. He's the only other person who seems to know what's really happening. And then he's quickly dispatched. And then the tape is proved, quote unquote, to be a phony. We get to hear the, quote unquote, again, real tape, courtesy of the psychiatrist. Yeah, and that earring microphone has really, really great audio quality. Hell yes. <laughs> it's very clear. Yeah, you can use it for podcasting, yeah. I would love, <laughs> yeah. I wish I could get my ear pierced with that right now. Yeah, that'd work. Um, you, you could kind of podcast on the hop just walking down the street. I have always wondered about that, though. The, uh, the you know, the tape that has the the, the uh, massive orgy on it, but then when he goes back and replays it, it's it's normal. I've always been curious, like, did the family go back and re-record that to make him feel like he's going insane or throw him off the track? It was, it's never really clear. It kind of reminds me of the tape from The Exorcist, where, like, you play it and it sounds normal, and then you play it backwards, and it's all this other stuff that's actually on there. But, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he just played it backwards, and then it was just a normal, hey, honey, get in the car kind of thing. Well, maybe the family kind of got together, literally. <laughs> and did the recording. It would have been nice to kind of somewhere later in the film have a bit of a uh, flashback to them recording the other part of the tape while they're in the situation they are when Billy finds out what they really are. It's one of those nice, to me, unexplained things. Kind of like that weird doll that Billy keeps finding in his car. It's like a Ken doll with a screw through its head. I'm not sure what this is supposed to signify, but it's threatening nevertheless. It's Milo messing with him, as we find out, because later he has the blow-up doll with the Ken doll in the blow-up doll's mouth. Although I'm not really sure what Milo is trying to accomplish. It's a very bizarre prank that doesn't have any payoff. It's just him. I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just they thought the imagery would be interesting. Maybe Milo's into Billy and doesn't really know how to express that. Hey, that works. There's a lot of gay themes in this movie and a lot of... Uh... I can't even say this word anymore without it thinking of uh, Zizek. There's a lot of the anus in this film. Our two main females, because I don't really count Shauna as our main female, because I wasn't even sure she was the same person when she showed back up to break up with Billy, because it just doesn't pay off. Or when she goes to the beach, I should say. That doesn't pay off to me from like her being the cheerleader. The two women, Jenny and Clarissa... Both of them have their bodies twisted around at some point. So it's like their sex organs are for are backwards, you know. So now it's the the butt in the front and the vagina in the back. And then that we have these two jumping forward, these two penetration scenes of men where they're basically being fisted. I mean, there's a lot of anus stuff in this and i guess that goes along with like the history of surrealism right two men get fisted in the course of like 10 minutes from each other maybe less i've only seen two other movies where that happened did gaspar noe direct one of them no i was thinking somebody showed me a gay porn once but that's another story yeah the uh anal birth of bert something about puppetry well not to mention that the dad his his head is literally his anus at one point And then the way that the sister's head comes down from between the mother's legs. I mean, that is one of the great visuals of this film. And we'll, we'll definitely talk about all the, all the amazing visuals as we go forward. It's what sells sells the movie. Oh yeah. I mean, that picture of the dad as the literal butthead 
I mean, that's what got me. The first time I saw that image, I was just like, what the hell movie is this from? I need to find this. <laughs> yeah, it's very kind of goatsy, really, isn't it? I guess it's more alienness of the society as opposed to literal aliens. And they make this big deal about are they aliens or are they not aliens? And, you know, the, they very specifically say we're not aliens, but we get the little kids shooting uh, before Billy gets bukkakeed. Well, I guess he gets bukkakeed twice <laughs> because he also gets the little kids doing that to him and, and screaming, die alien scum. They do that to his girlfriend. Oh, that's right. Who actually is a member of the society. Okay. Oh, so the, the, from the mouth of babes. I <laughs> But yeah, they yeah, do those, say die alien scum, and I think that's that's very deliberate. Those kids are a little bit like the Frog Brothers in um, what's the name? What's that movie? Uh, Lost Boys. Maybe this is their early beginnings, and then they move uh, up the coast. Yeah, the Frog Brothers' the early years. This is the prequel. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> that's a franchise I could get behind. The lives <laughs> of the Frog Brothers. And then you have the next movie where they're middle aged and, and trying to shoot kind of milf vampires or something. Didn't they do that? Wasn't there one of the direct-to-video sequels to The Lost Boys where the Frog Brothers came back and it was just depressing? I seem to remember something about it, yeah. It seems like Corey Feldman would not let that opportunity pass him by. You want a party? There's a Nightcrawler who's created a new designer drug. The only problem is it's not a drug. It's vampire blood. He's breeding an undead army. The only thing that stands between him and the annihilation of the entire human race would be us, the Frog Brothers. We haven't been the Frog Brothers for a long time. I can't do it without you. Eventually, we are introduced to Judge Carter, who is like the authority figure in this movie. And again, I think that we should have had a little bit more of Judge Carter because he's just kind of like here along with the family at one point and i really think that he should have had more to do and actually shown that he had a little bit of power but he just seems like i guess it's fitting he's more the shadowy character behind the scenes but we necessarily we don't necessarily ever see him doing much in this movie do we just see him in that one scene and then not again until the end i'm trying to remember i think that's i think that's yeah Yeah. i think so yeah yeah yeah, he's, he doesn't really have the gravitas for the role in a sense. I, I think that the judge should have been a, a bit more powerful and menacing figure and not just somebody chomping a wet cigar all the time. Yeah, he should have like channeled more like Joe Don Baker from Joysticks or something, you know, like had that gravitas to him. Yeah, or even Charlie Varick for that matter. That would have been fun. Did you say Joysticks had gravitas? Just making sure that I heard that right. I'm not sure we all agree on that one. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't realize at first that Blanchard has that ear license plate, which um, is very appropriate for his character. And him, oh my God, Billy there and with the, uh, he's like standing amongst the wreckage of Blanchard's car. And it just feels like he's, I mean, he's, he's literally just walking right into the middle of a crime scene. And this is the introduction of a uh, police character and see i thought the police character would pay off and take him in front of the judge and then we would get again some of that stuff and maybe get a little bit more stakes as far as like something billy wants or some sort of threat to him that's outside of the family and there's really nothing you know like there's the 
the debate stuff, the, uh, the, the class stuff, and then the girlfriend stuff, but we're quickly pulling those away and there's nothing else there for him to really hold on to. I mean, there's, there's just basketball. So maybe if there was like a, you know, basketball tournament or something that meant something to him, but that's the one thing that he manages to hold on to. So even if we had like a, a third act, big basketball thing where he turns into a werewolf or something then maybe i could see that but yeah they do have that body horror bit with blanchard's funeral where he touches his cheek and the cheek kind of collapses in and they think that it's a reconstruction work after the car accident that's kind of a nice little note there to keep the the horror going during that bit where it's mostly investigation into what's going on that's right around the reintroduction of milo because like i said he's been kind of missing in this and he also shows up at what is it, Ted the Tycoon Ferguson's party? Because there's a whole thing at the beach where Shauna wants Billy to get an invite for this big party that's coming up. And then that absolutely bizarre, he gets a letter in the mail from Ted <laughs> inviting him to it. He says, yeah, I'll send you a telegram. And then he actually does. It's like, what? <laughs> so that was surprising, but pleasantly so. Well, now you just everyone would just get text messages, so it's it's a little more uh, <laughs> cinematic. Yeah, well, you know that's that's always been my problem with Death Proof is the uh, the long scenes of reading text messages over uh, orchestrated music. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of things come together in that party scene. You know, we get uh, again Clarissa showing up. We've got Milo showing up. We're we're getting more of a relationship between Clarissa and Billy. And I'd say Clarissa, even though this is late '80s, she's really got it going on in this movie. And I was, she was always very uh, nice to see on screen. I think she was like a like a Playboy playmate or something before this. I know this was her first movie. Yeah, she was. Uh, there's uh, some extras on the Arrow disc where they interview her, and basically she says, "Yeah, I did Playboy, and then I did some uh, nude modeling, but I'd never done." kind of video nudity before this movie and, and she felt very awkward about doing that. Devin DeVasquez is her name. So this was her first kind of sex scene, though if you do a quick uh, video search, you can see that it wasn't her last. That awkwardness that she has on screen that we talked about, you know, as far as the actors go, that actually plays in her favor. Like, I don't know, she might have blossomed into a terrific actress, but in this one, she's a little bit rough around the edges. And I think that works in her favor for this film. Everybody just seems so off like her, especially, but that, that party scene where he kind of gets to know her better is, is a little weird because it's, it's like, he just immediately decides to start cheating on his girlfriends with her. And it kind of comes out of nowhere. It's just all of a sudden <laughs> he's just, wasn't, wasn't there a scene at the school though, where she, um, where his girlfriend kind of broke up with him? Uh, oh, was there? I might be forgetting yeah. that. Yeah, there was just a brief thing. Uh, the acting was so bad, it's easy to forget that. <laughs> but, uh, hey, yeah. that's Heidi Kozak from Friday the 13th, Part 7. Yeah, well, it's I'll give her her point. due. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the, the best bit in that sex scene, though, is um, Billy Warlock's O-Face. It's hilarious. It kind of, even if your O-Face is really like that, you probably shouldn't use it in a movie, but he does. Well, it has a moment where it's like, oh, I guess he's done... It's very, uh, pardon the pun, anticlimactic. Yes. Well, as we find out later in the movie, everybody who's part of society is actually a great big jelly blob full of worms. So maybe <laughs> his dick hit the worms. 
Well, for sure, he freaks out when her other hand comes out from the wrong angle and starts stro- stroking his face. So I don't know if he if he necessarily finished or not, but he's he's out of the bed as soon as that happens, and then gets to see her all twisted around. Which again, it's a it's an easy effect to do with just having two women, you know, laying in bed that way. Uh, but it pays off very well. It's such a simple effect, but it's so effective. Yeah, it tells the strangeness really well. The revelation that that big, quiet woman at the beach who was very intimidating to Billy, not only you know because Billy Warlock is, is so short and this woman seems to be pretty tall, but that she's just there looming and menacing, that she ends up being Clarissa's mom is pretty awesome. And it's like every time we see her, she's got different a uh, different hairstyle. And then... It took me a long time to realize that she's got some sort of weird hair thing where she seems to eat people's hair and she spits out this, I I guess it's a hairball. Is is the earring inside of the hairball? I think it's just a hairball. If you look at the the beginning of that scene where she comes in and kind of interrupts them while they're in the living room. And the, there's like a wider shot of her and she's just holding a clump of blonde hair. So I think she just kind of like snacks on it, I guess. I got the impression that she, because I guess she's a part of the society. She's Clarissa's mom, mm. but I, I, I don't know because like there's so much incestuous going stuff going on. I wonder if she's like the product of inbreeding, and that's why she is the way she is. It's never really explained. It's just one of those sort of odd things that they put in the movie. I have a theory about Clarissa's mom. Everybody else is into the orgy scenes and all that kind of thing. She does it solo, and that's why she keeps spitting out hair. She's eaten somebody and spat out the hair. And she's kind of shunned from society because she doesn't get involved in all the fun. Well, it's weird, too, because she's not really involved with the orgy. And then Clarissa's not involved with the orgy. Like, she stays clear of that whole thing. And she, I mean, it doesn't seem right that she falls in love with Billy, it seems like. And then she doesn't want anything to do with the shunting at the end. She just is like, oh, Billy, oh, I'm going to save you. And it doesn't necessarily fit with the rest of society. So I guess she would be kind of an outcast from them. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty standard trope to have the, you know, the, the potential villainous character kind of come around to falling for our hero. And then, you know, her giving up her evil ways or her, you know, the environment she's grown up on, but it's the, the the characters are kind of underwritten. So it it does sort of come out of nowhere. That's the, um, James Bond fucks the bad girl trope. Yes. Yeah. And the, and the bad girl turns around and then gets shot by the bad guys. That's the official name for it, that entire long stretch that you just said. (laughs) It's a work in progress. I'll I'll bring it down to about four words at some stage. Yeah, Fucks the bad out of her? Or fucks the good into her, one or one or the other, yeah. We talked about Blanchard getting his face poked by Milo earlier. That church scene is really strange, because it looks like a church, but then there's a big Star David on the wall. So I was like, what are we saying here? Are we in a temple rather than a church? But then that doesn't necessarily make sense because I don't think that he would be embalmed like that and laying out if he was in a temple. I think they just filmed wherever they were allowed to film. Okay. Uh, I'm putting, uh, yeah, sorry. I'm thinking way too much. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, certain, there's certain details of the movie that are planned out, but I don't know if that was one. Yeah, we can't really go into that too deeply because I'm starting to think the whole movie's anti Semitic. <laughs> Well, that's like what happened to John Carpenter when people were trying to come out and say that They Live was anti-Semitic, which this is a movie I would compare to They Live in certain aspects. Yeah. They Live always struck me as just like an anti-wrestler movie. 
I would say with that scene in the uh, the the alleyway, it's a pro wrestling movie. Well, yeah, I mean, though Keith David wasn't a wrestler, and he kind of gives as good as he gets. I thought we were still talking about society, and I got horribly confused. Oh wow! Yeah, sorry, no, no wrestling <laughs> think, in society. I think, good, I think a good Roddy Piper scene would have parked up this movie really well. <laughs> if he just like came running in and like body slammed Marty or something. I'm just going to say it. Society is an anti-wrestling movie because there's no wrestling in it. There you go. It's very pro basketball, though. We were talking about Milo and the whole blow up doll thing. The whole shrunken head. Apparently he did that to uh, Billy as well. I mean, Milo's got just a weird sense of humor. He's just the zany 80s supporting character. That's how they were. Do you remember that scene in Revenge of the Nerds where where Booger stuffs uh, shrunken heads into people's lockers? I'm surprised Milo wasn't a horn dog and like just did that whole riff throughout the entire movie. You know, like, uh, do you like Swedish films? Those kind of things. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah, it feels like he should be that kind of trope. The the sort of uh, like the '80s boner comedy kind of you know horn dog character, but he's he's not. He's just he's just odd. Everything in the movie is just slightly off. He's kind of not necessary to anything that goes on in the movie for for the most part of it, really. He's kind of slightly superfluous. Until they need him to move the plot yeah, along. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He's just one of those levers they pull to get something somewhere. So we talked about the way that Billy is stripped of everything throughout this film, and the last really remaining thing left for him is this whole class president stuff. So there's this very elaborate plot <laughs> for... Marty to suddenly befriend Billy, say, meet me out here at the canyon tonight. Billy shows up. Marty's had his throat slit. And then uh, the, he goes and grabs the cops with with Clarissa, comes back. It's a different car. Yada, yada, yada. Goes to school the next day and then announces that Marty's dead. And when Marty shows up, it's just like, oh, joke's on you, gumshoe. Ha, ha, ha. And then that's like the end of his political career. So now he is stripped of everything. But like I said, it's it's very, very elaborate, the lengths that they go to to humiliate him in front of the class. Yeah, it's a really good job of gaslighting, really. He's been gaslighted his whole life. And still he's he tries to play kind of cute and, and you know charismatic in the Baywatch style. He ends up in a hospital in, oh, I know, it's he comes home and there's like an intervention waiting for him. And I think that might actually be where we maybe see the judge again. And I think the psychiatrist is definitely there. And so we kind of get the idea that the psychiatrist is in on it with the family. I mean, it would make sense if, you know, the psychiatrist is leading this whole thing. Right. And we get Billy being put into the hospital and then it gets this whole series of audio audible flashbacks. And I thought for sure here, he would, put things together and suddenly realize what's going on. But instead he just kind of like wakes up and he's just like, Hey, all my fears are real. I am free now. And so I thought maybe he would just leave town after that, but no, he just, now he's on this, this path to collide with everything at the end of the film. You know, even when Clarissa tells him like, don't go home, he still ends up having to go home and I guess face all of his fears and face his family. Yeah, it seems like a, a silly choice for that kind of thing. If it was me, I'd just burn the house down and get the hell out of there. Yeah, a little bit of arson. Oops, sorry, something went wrong. And get the hell out, and then you have the the great big shunting thing in flames. That would have been good, but the, the ending kind of lets it down after 
the gross out wonderfulness of, of those parts. But yeah, um, Billy makes bad life choices. I think that's the message of the movie. Get out when you have the chance. Yeah, they fuck you up, their par- your parents do, yeah. I was going to say, did we get to the shunting now? Now we have the glorious shunting scene. Can we? That's, 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 you just have to get to the shunting, so. Mm. <laughs> the rest of the movie up until that is pretty clunky. <laughs> and then the shunting more than makes up for it. I mean, they knew that this, uh, like, Yuzna says in the, the extras, and I think he even says it in the, the interview that you'll hear later, they knew where they wanted to go, and they basically worked backwards from there. So this piece de resistance is where everything was leading this whole time, and they just they knew that where they were going to be. And this is a tour de force. You know, this is the moment that people talk about with this moment with this movie. This whole third act shunting ritual scene, and it just keeps going, which is fantastic. And every time you think that we're done with what's happening, they go back to it, or they might turn it up a little bit more. They might move to another location and show something else. And it's just, it it works so well. Yeah, I mean, just the the start of the shunting would be enough for most movies. And then it just keeps building and building on Mm. top of that. And the great thing is, like, I mean, there's a couple little hints early on, like when he sees the bump on his sister's back or tiny moments like that that indicate that there might be some sort of body horror. But nothing can prepare you (laughs) for the shunting. Yeah, they they dial it up to 11. And there's so much methyl cellulose goo. Used. They must have had like 44-gallon drums of that stuff just to pour over people. It's in, it's like the weirdest use of KY jelly in the world. I was really reminded of the end of Terror Vision and how Garrett Graham's hot tub slash pool just becomes this gelatinous mass. And I think that was all KY jelly. And yeah, this is very similar as far as like people basically melt into each other and it just becomes this glorious mess of bodies twisting and reforming and it's it's great that they do all this stuff with practical effects i mean it's very smart that he shoots this with this very intense red light to kind of you know hide the edges a little bit as it were but it works really, really well because it also makes it into a much more horrific scene with that red light. And to see, I, I think the one visual image for me that always gets me is I think it's the judge when he reaches and he grabs Blanchard's buttocks because now we are reintroduced. Blanchard is not dead. Ha ha, he's actually alive. And he is one of two sacrificial lambs for the, the shunting. And he reaches down and grabs a buttock, and his fingers just slide right into that flesh. It's such a simple thing, but it just, oh, it just gets me every single time I see it. Because it's just, it's so smooth the way that it happens. It's goopy. That's the only word to describe it as goopy. And yeah, yeah that, red, that red lighting is, like, because you see it happen in one of the shots. It just switches to that red lighting. There's no real justification for it. But it just adds so much to the atmosphere of that entire sequence. Yeah, I think I think between the red lighting and the goo, it kind of hides the fact that all of that latex isn't really textured like human skin. And so it, it kind of gives it a, a reality that it might not have had otherwise because you think, oh, yeah, they're oozing this stuff out of their skin. And so their skin suddenly loses texture. And all of those wonderful screaming mad George special effects 
are enhanced by that lighting and the goo. And we talked about Screaming Mad George way, way long ago on the projection booth when we did an episode on Freaked. And you can really see those Freaked looks in this as well. Like that whole idea of like Ricky and the way that his face looks or, you know, the troll and these kind of things. You can see that kind of viscera also going on with this. And yeah, it's like, it's, it's like the, you're talking about the, the, the oozing of stuff. And it's like, sweat mixed with just snot or or mucus it just feels like every sort of of uh fluid that a body can produce is suddenly on these people and just the way that it is just dripping off of them and this is where really like you know i i kind of was slagging on the judge carter character earlier but he comes to the fore in this whole sequence and this is where he shines i mean this actor doesn't seem to have any fear when it comes to just going balls out with this almost literally but him and his his uh stupid boxer shorts and stuff and his cigar and his undershirt i mean it's just a perfect look for him as he's just enjoying this idea and the way that all of these people are falling upon blanchard and then just starting to morph into him oh it it works so well. Yeah, this is one pe- one place where people in society don't dress for dinner. No. <laughs> <laughs> I saw the extras with Screaming Mad George being interviewed, and he mentioned that he was really influenced for this movie by Salvador Dali's work. And you can definitely see that you've got that kind of elasticity of the skin and skin being repurposed and, and morphed and all that kind of thing. And I think it works really, really well. Uh, it's a creatively, the way he kind of twists and turns and changes human bodies is genius yeah and it's so i mean it's it goes so far and the visuals are so bizarre and surreal that it's it's not even like i can't even imagine trying to submit this movie to the mpaa because it's not gore it's 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 beyond <laughs> i think that was someone described a john waters movie a critic once that it was beyond pornography that it's <laughs> like that's kind of like this where it's like it's so its own thing where it's like how do you yeah. even like, how do you rate this in comparison to other horror movies of that era? Yeah. It, uh, nothing nothing got, compares. Maybe it's got its own genre, pus punk. One of the, the shots that always gets me in John Carpenter's The Thing is when Blair puts his hand over Gary's mouth and his hand starts to become part of Gary's mouth. It's like his fingers go underneath Gary's skin. That's the part this is reminding me of. You know, it's just like the, the way that The Thing can turn into all of these you know different shapes and creatures and stuff and i guess that whole thing with like i was talking about scream man george and and the freaked effects also that effect in the thing which i know is not screaming mad george it's rob Bottin, but that effect in the thing where it looks like the person was half transformed before they burned him or froze him or whatever it was and then you get that idea in here as well where we have these bodies shifting into each other insofar as like at one point again when you don't think you could go any farther there's a literal pool where they just kind of unform and form back into themselves and now now the judge has uh, Blanchard's beauty mark on his cheek so it's like all of their their cells commingled and they're able to pull themselves back apart into what they were. And apparently I guess it seems like they're using Blanchard for food or just for sport or maybe a combination of both. I think there's definitely a food aspect to it. 
Yeah, they seem to they seem to plan for this because that's the Billy Warlock's character is sort of he's been kind of brought up with the intention of eventually using him for the shunting. Yeah, it's kind of like a whole pig barbecue for these people. Yes, it, it is exactly like a whole pig barbecue. <laughs> yeah, just grab <laughs> grab pieces off it and, and eat them. So it's basically, uh, yeah, it's it's not the sort of party you want to be invited to, really, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so I do appreciate the uh, the kind of metaphor of rich people being spineless. They don't have any bones in them. I didn't even think about that. I was just thinking of the the very obvious metaphor of the rich literally eating the poor. That's, again, oh, going to this movie not being subtle. Like, even with the judge, you mentioned that moment yeah. where he has the, the beauty mark on him now from from eating the Blanchard character, which is like, that would have been a great little moment, but they had to spell it out by having him actually, I think he even says, like, oh, I have the beauty mark now, or something. Like, he really points it out. It would have been, been nice if it was a little more subtle. I think if it was made now, that what they'd do is he'd get a tattoo off Blanchard or something like that, rather than a beauty mark. So it would be really cool if they remade this movie, and why not? If uh, somebody they had like a tattooed member of society who collected tattoos off the people they ate. Only if it's all practical effects. Otherwise, there would be Absolutely, no point. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> You've got to go they'd actually have to get tattooed? All the shunting would have to be authentic. It's a weird term, really, shunting. It's what you do to join trains together. It's, so it's a it's a kind of an odd term to use, but it, it seems sort of semi appropriate. Is that the actual? That's what shunting yeah. is. Okay, yeah, you I know, never you, heard of it outside of the movie. No, you know when you join up two train carriages and they will go clunk together and those things interlock. Oh, that's okay. the only meaning of shunting, really. So basically, it's I suppose you could argue the point that the human centipede shunts people together. So you're saying that Solo, a Star Wars story, is actually a de shunting story. <laughs> I'm not sure. I haven't seen that. I've got this real kind of ID fix that Star Wars is not worth my attention. I get such shit for that. I don't know if you will anymore. <laughs> I won. I won. It's just, it's too many women. Too many women in that movie. My God. <laughs> how, how can you do it? And again, when you don't think that things can even go farther, you know, Billy manages to escape thanks to Clarissa and kind of thanks to Clarissa's mom and to Milo, who show up as kind of the cavalry, though they're fairly ineffectual. And I'm surprised that Milo doesn't get eaten in this part. But he's uh, Billy's being chased by the psychiatrist and that weird turn when the psychiatrist's head turns into almost it's almost the devil horns you know it's almost Rodney james dio flashing the devil horns and then his hand becomes that as well and that's a great moment for me is when the hand goes reaching out towards billy i mean that is a very surrealistic moment for me and that is what leads us into billy's oedipal nightmare going into his parents bedroom where we've seen them before mom dad and the sister pretty much half-dressed, hanging out in the bedroom, and then here they are, very indisposed, let's say, and, God, some really, again, horrific, horrific images. I mean, the whole idea of the mom walking on her hands, and it's... I don't even think they're her hands, though. I think they are they look like man hands, so I think they're yeah. husband's yeah. hands. And then, yeah, then the daughter coming out of her vagina... As, as you know, is known to happen. You only usually do it once. I didn't really want to think about that one too hard at the time because I was worried I'd have nightmares about it. But uh, it's, brilliant. it's a brilliant use of uh, the concept. 
that they had for the movie and, and just kind of having the three of them morph together and realizing that the orgies they were having were basically them merging together like spare bits of soap. It's a, it's a brilliant little moment there. And then the movie ends in a fist fight, just like every good movie should end. Just like every movie should end. It <laughs> ends in a fist fight. Especially so, uh, Solo, a Star Wars story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it might end in a fist fight. I, what always got me was, uh, I think it was Clear and Present Danger, one of the uh, Jack Ryan movies, where it's like Jack Ryan is a really smart guy. He really outwits the bad guy at all times, but they end up having a fist fight on a boat. And I'm just like, dude, that guy's like 20 years younger than you. How are you winning? But he's Harrison Ford. He can do what he wants. Well, no, this movie doesn't end with a fist fight. It ends with fisteen. <laughs> the second the second moment of fisteen in, in the span of mm-hmm. 10 minutes. Yeah. And that's that's the only moment, like as surreal and, and gross as all this stuff is, that's the only moment that feels like actual gore uh, where he pulls him inside out and it's it's yeah. just disgusting. Yeah, it's kind of like a visualization of, you know, I'm going to sh- shove my hand up your ass and pull your teeth out. And they actually do that. Yeah pop his eyes turns him inside out and then who was it that said that it looks like all these worms on the inside of them or slugs Ooh. yeah there he's all full of worms which kind of ties in at the to the beginning when the the apple full of worms it's a little foreshadowing for that oh and the way that they're complimenting the gardener on all of his his fresh crop of slugs because you're like oh they're they're complimenting him on his roses or something, and then he's no, he's got all these slugs in his hand. Blech. And then at the but, shunting at the party, you see there's a like a waiter with a plate full of slugs. So that even that comes back. Yeah, it's I like the idea of if you want to go fishing, and you don't have any bait, just rip a rich person inside out. Just full of worms. Absolutely. The big question here is, is Trump one of them? <laughs> uh I I don't really have any doubt in my mind. <laughs> he looks like a screaming mad George creation. He does a bit, yeah. But the thing is, is Melania one of them, or does she like next week's full pig barbecue? Have we ever seen this in a movie before? A character getting pulled inside out like that? Like even even since then, I don't know if I've ever seen that visual before in anything. I can't think of one. No, I can't think of any either. It's it's rare when you see something in a film that you could honestly say you've never, ever seen before. I want to say I've seen in cartoons like a cat being pulled inside out and then you get to see the cat skeleton. Around. <laughs> but he wasn't full of worms. No, he wasn't worms full of KY worms. Jelly. But yeah, that might be about it. And now I'm going to have to like scan through 100 cartoons until I find that image or something. It seems like something that Max Fleischer would have done a long time ago. Yeah, but I think it goes to show that they had a kind of audacity and a boldness to do that. And going places no one had gone before or possibly since to just go, okay, we're going to show you what's inside. Here's how we're going to do it. Bam. And they just kind of reach up, pull it out through the eyeballs and and turn the guy inside out. Yeah, Brian Eusen has done a lot of weird shit since then, but I don't think Mm. anything has come close to just the the amount, the quantity Mm. of weird shit that's in this movie. Well, it is such a a wonderful way to end this film. Like I said, they pulled out all the stops because there's just like, we could have maybe gotten a little bit more at the beginning, a little bit more in the middle, but it's a train that's going, going, going until that shunting happens. And it is just, it, it will leave you with a lot of fond memories to take with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I once watched Dune, the David Lynch Dune while on acid. 
And that was a good experience. This is the kind of movie that I would never watch on acid. That's funny. The, one of the few times I've done acid, I watched Blue Velvet. Oh, God. That and, sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. How fucked up are you? <laughs> now, Dune is interesting because we're trying to calculate in metric how long the sandworms were, and we came out like they were 15 miles long. It's totally inaccurate, but we couldn't do mathematics at that stage. There have been documented sightings of worms as large as 450 meters in the deep desert. I even forgot after I watched this the first time whether Billy gets away because I really I don't really kind of care. It almost yeah, it almost doesn't matter because the movie just once the shunting is over. Yeah, they have him quickly run out with his friends and then it just cuts to black. It's just like, okay, you got what you paid for. We're out. (laughs) I still think he should have set the house on fire. Even if it was like a really bad model, it would have been fun. Clarissa is one of them, so the the creatures are still around, you know. I mean, but really, even though Billy escapes with Clarissa and Milo, society, the creatures, other than Turd Ferguson, Turd Ferguson, it's a funny name. They're all still there. Everybody's still fine, and they're all just going to continue on with their thing apparently there have been sequels to this there was a comic book sequel and then there was a, a sequel movie written that hasn't been shot yet and i don't know if it ever will be but yeah this leaves us wide open there's uh there's a whole lot of messed up stuff that can still go on well they just, just kind of let him leave too like they're yeah. all just standing around and they watch him leave it's like they're not terribly concerned about their cover being blown maybe they were all going into a food coma <laughs> they're just too tired <laughs> yeah too much meat you just kind of want to lie around on the couch and watch television i think a few years hence billy will be walking somewhere in san francisco and see milo and be like milo milo it's you you're okay and then milo points at him and just like a big slug comes out of his mouth the invasion of the body snatchers ending but yeah. the with yeah. but he's full of worms i think if they do the sequel it should be like society to the trump presidency Oh man, yeah the uh, <laughs> the satire you could do with this type of story now. Would oh, be... absolutely, yeah. Well, I know back uh, during the the Bush administration, Stuart Gordon wanted to do another Reanimator movie with Reanimator in the White House, and it was going to be satirical of that, and that never came to be either. But it's uh, him and I know him and Brian Usna have a connection. With William H Macy was supposed to play the president in that. Yeah, I, I mean, it must have gone far enough along where they were, you know, casting it. I don't know what what happened to it. It's disappointing because now the last reanimator we have is Brian Yusna's Beyond Reanimator, which yeah. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to revisit it when the Blu-ray comes out because yeah. I haven't seen it in forever, but I remember being really disappointed. Yeah, oh, I would watch the shit out of a, a reanimated movie with William H. Macy in it. That would be in my ballpark, definitely. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with director Brian Yusna, and we'll be back with that after these brief messages. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by 
giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah, I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No, okay, uh, dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, he's, right? He's in a yeah, million the bushy movies. eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes have a mustache. Yeah, well, that, but but he's shaved. Well, he, no, he didn't. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen the, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. <laughs> Listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. From what I understand, you grew up over in the Philippines. Actually, I didn't grow up in the Philippines. I was bored there, and I spent my first few years there, and then I lived in Nicaragua, Panama, and Puerto Rico until I went to high school in Atlanta, Georgia. And even though I was a movie fan, which was not so uncommon, and I was a kind of an EC Comics, Mad Magazine, horror movie kind of kid, and I fooled around with the Super 8 camera in high school and stuff like that, I never really, um, you know, considered that you could, you know, make a living making movies until I was about, I think, I was pushing 30, you know, and I and that was when video recorders were starting to kind of just invented, really. I ended up with a with a Bullock 16 millimeter camera. It was one of the cameras that all the TV news outfits were dumping because they were all going to video. They didn't have didn't have to. They were all starting to shoot on three quarter inch video and because they didn't um, have to used the lab then for their film. And so they were dumping these cameras and I ended up with one and started fooling around with it and then thought I'd make a movie and I found somebody who had studied film in school. And so I started, uh, you know, making a short and that turned into a feature, kind of all amateur stuff. And this was in North Carolina. I kind of liked it so much that I started reading the magazines and and trying to figure out how maybe I could make money doing that. And that basically led me to move to L.A. because at that time, you couldn't really do it 
you know, everybody that wanted to make movies went to L.A. pretty much. You know, that's how I ended up out here. And I was lucky enough to be able to make movies and kind of make a living at it from one. Well, what was that first feature like? Was that a horror film? Uh, kind of. It was sort of an art, not really horror, because it was it had special effects. It was called Self-Portrait and Brains, <laughs> about an artist who puts dynamite in his mouth and blows his head against the canvas as a piece of art and kind of comes back as a hologram. You know, it's a revenge type thing. I mean, it wasn't any good. I didn't know it wasn't any good until I showed it to my friend. Because when you make something, you always think it's wonderful. And then after I did that, I thought, gee, I should do this, but professionally, you know, with people who are professionals. And so I put a um, ad in Variety, a little one-inch ad that said, horror movie director wanted. And I got like hundreds of letters. In fact, back then there wasn't even fax machines. Calling long distance was expensive, you know. So then I went out to L.A. and started having meetings with the people that sent me the letters and eventually met someone out there that kind of showed me around and took me to movie sets. And and I started realizing that all the people from around the country that were like me all went to L.A. And so it was just sort of like you were in this, you know, kind of where you might be able to make movies. And that kind of got me into it. Well, how did you start getting gigs? How'd you get involved with like Empire Pictures? My friend took me to the Empire sets. And at first I was doing more financing type stuff. I was, the first thing I did out here to make money is I went in with a guy who, two people who, one of them was a collector and one was a, he was a lawyer, but he was kind of a hustler and, and we, we basically sold like hundreds of hours of public domain TV shows to the UHF stations. You know, once the TV went from, like when I was growing up, there'd be like four channels. And then it went up to like 13 channels. But then when they went above 13, it was, I think that was a UHF. And that was like, so there was like channel 55. And you know what I mean? So everywhere had a channel, but a lot of them didn't have any money. And they were looking for the cheapest programming. And we found this, that we could package this um, public domain old 50 shows. They call it their their golden years of television. That was sort of like how I first kind of kept going. Yeah, you know, paid my way. And and then also I, when I met Empire, I really liked what Charlie, I met Albert Band, who was Charlie Band's father. And that was right when Charlie was starting Empire. And I had a project, which they basically fleeced me for. (laughs) And I helped. Charlie was always in trouble with cash flow. So he was always desperate for money to pay the crew or something. And But he also had a video distribution company, which anybody could do back then. It was very lucrative. He was always willing to discount contracts directly from the video chains so the money wouldn't go through him. It would sign over to you and he would give a big discount because he was always desperate. And um, so I was able to kind of get involved with doing some of that kind of financing um, for some of his, the early Empire movies. 
And then eventually I made, um, I realized I was never going to get a movie made with Charlie and he owed me money. So then I started developing Reanimator with Stuart Gordon. And in order to get the money back from Charlie, I produced it out of his offices and using money he owed me to do the post and let him do the foreign sales and take and do the, you know, distribute it in the U S too, which he was just starting empire distribution and all that worked real well until he didn't pay the money. And I had to sue and it was just this long nightmare of getting unentangled from him. But that's how I got into making movies. It was, I borrowed the money from people I knew back East and some in California. So I got people to just risk money and I made the movie and paid them back. And luckily Reanimator was outstanding. Then the next two movies I did, Charlie paid for. So he paid for Dolls and From Beyond, which I both of which I produced. We made them in Italy. And um it was during From Beyond that I had to sue him and so then I had I quit doing business with him. I was working on robot jocks with Stuart and then I I quit because I was having to sue him for the monies that had been misappropriated um, from certain revenues of reanimate. The old Hollywood story, actually. So, there, so it, it, in answer to your question, the way I got a job was I just paid for it. I just, I was the producer, so I was the boss. So the, the um, message is you can do any job you want if you pay for it. So if you if you finance a movie, you can do whatever you want. Luckily, at that point, I was smart enough not to try to write or direct it. I developed it. You know, I pay. I hired. You know, I paid. Stuart Gordon and Dennis Paoli and William Norris already had a fifty-page television script that they had written when I first met Stuart, and I agreed to option it and to develop it into a feature. And so over the period of a year, we went back and forth developing the feature and then shot it. You worked with Stuart Gordon a lot. You also worked with Ed Naha a lot. How did you meet Ed? Well, Ed, um, I met through Charlie Band because Charlie had a pro- had a project from him. The first movie Charlie paid for, but my second movie as a producer was Dolls. And, and um, Charlie wanted it, wanted to make a movie about, about dolls. And so Ed Naha was pitching stuff to Charlie. And so he pitched this Hansel and Gretel type thing and he made that script. So that's how I knew Ed. And then when, um, I think Stuart, Stuart kept working with Charlie Band, all of them did, Stuart and, you know, the actors all kept working with Charlie when I bailed, when I separate. So I went my own way, and Stuart stayed working with Charlie. And he made a number of movies with Charlie that I wasn't at all involved in. And I think one of those was also written by Ed Nana, not just Dolls. I think it was, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Castle Fruit might have been an Ed Nana script. I'm not sure. And I'm not, I think that it was originally called Bloodless, but I may be wrong. I know there was a project called Bloodless, and I think that Ed Maha wrote it. And it took place in a castle and everything, but I think it might have been what turned into Castle Freak, that, you know, the movie that um, Stewart directed um, in Italy with uh, Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs. 
and a, and a shrink. <laughs> but I think, and then after that, when Stuart and I, actually, while we were doing From Beyond, we were still in post on Dolls, because we shot Dolls in From Beyond before we edited in Europe. So we went to Italy. I think it was in the, um, it was in the fall of 85. Then we shot Dolls before Christmas. And then after Christmas, we shot From Beyond on the same set, actually. We built one set and then adapted it between the movies. So on Dolls, it was a big, it was a, it was a English kind of house in Dolls. And then From Beyond, it was supposed to be in Salem, Massachusetts. So we shot them both. On, it was a big sound stage. It was the Dino De Laurentiis Studios in, in out, right up side of Rome. And so we shot both of them there. But while we were shooting, well, right before we began shooting from beyond, I guess, we came back to the States because we had come up with this idea for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and we pitched it to Disney, and they went for it. And then we proposed, we, we wrote the basic story, and then they then they wanted to do it. And so then we proposed Ed Naha to write it. And so Ed Naha came in and wrote on it. And then there was another writer, too, finally. But anyway, that's the, the other way I knew Ed. I worked with him on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And other than that, I don't think, I think I only worked with him on those two things, on, um, you know, that got made which was Dolls and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And, I, you know, at one point or another, I had um, talked to him about projects, but I never, none of them got made. Now, you're listed as a producer on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. How much of a role did you actually play in the production of that? Well, on the development side, I, I, I was the producer. I developed the whole thing with, while Stuart was the director. And right like a week before we were going to shoot, Stuart um, had to leave the project due to health reasons. And then I I was supplanted, basically, by the new director came in, who was Joe Johnston. And naturally, you know, people bring in their own. But yeah, I, I developed the whole thing, developed the story. You know, for eight months, I was the producer of the movie. How did you come to society? Um, well, after I left Charlie Band... I mean, I quit working with him. Then I needed to find another way to go. And on, with Reanimator, I had raised the money from people who weren't in the movie business. Of course, neither was I. And the movie was, you know, I paid them all back and, and with, with a, a, a guaranteed return. And even so, it wasn't a... Um, it's not like I was on bad terms with anybody, but I could tell that, you know, because the movie had a kind of notoriety, there was this feeling that um, they should have gotten rich off it. <laughs> well, of course, you know, all the money was siphoned away by um, Empire and by, and really by Vestron, um, who Empire was deeply in debt to. What they do is stuff like they would sell the movie with a package of 10 movies, say, or 20 movies. And then they would, basically, people would have to buy all those other movies to get Reanimator, but then they would pay Reanimator 120th of the package. 
And then in, in Empire's case, they wouldn't pay the money to me anyway. I'd go to the markets, I'd talk to buyers, and they would say they paid so many hundreds of thousand dollars to Charlie, but then it wouldn't be accounted to me. So all the money that came in on Reanimator, I didn't get. It. I didn't get, it. and that's why I had to, to take out a, a very expensive lawsuit and finally wrangle the pitch back plus some money. But of course, the money was gone. So, um, so then that makes it very awkward. <laughs> I mean, everybody, all the investors got their. I guaranteed them a return on their money, and I paid it. But as far as getting rich, that wasn't going to happen. And I realized that I would prefer to to work with companies that were in the business of movies and not with people who weren't, who might have naive or unrealistic ideas about what the business is like. And I think anybody who makes a movie and finances it from people not in the movie business will probably tell you this. If you talk to anybody like that, they'll probably eventually it's just so much better to deal with people who are companies to finance because if the movie doesn't work or if there's a problem with it, you're dealing with people who are protecting who know the business who are protecting their own, you know, their own interests. Whereas if you if you have a if your father's friend is a dentist and he puts up some money, you have to feel like you have to protect him. Whereas if you go deal with a movie company, you don't have to protect them. You just protect yourself. Everybody knows what the score is. They know what the business is. And, and so very, so right after Reanimator, I was really happy to do the movies with Charlie because then I got, actually got a fee and didn't have any risk and didn't have to protect anybody. Of course, those movies don't really, it, all you get is your fee. That's the other part of it. It's fine as long as you're making new movies every year. You don't have an annuity. Nobody's paying, you know, all, you know, it's like, I'm sure you've heard a million times, you know, think about getting net points. It just doesn't work. You know, you don't get anything from profit participation, except with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, I did make a, a lot of money on um, because that movie was just so successful. If you pay for it yourself, then you stand to benefit if you the movie works. And down the line, if the movie's good, you can still sell it later, you know, years later. But if you make it for as a job, even if you get profit points, you're basically just going to get your fee. Unless you're another way to go is you can instead of profit points, you can get. You can get payments based on certain performance, so you don't have to try to worry about the obtuse accounting of, of movies for profits. I just wanted to deal with companies, with people who were in the business of movies, and not have to deal with people who were outside of it and didn't know the business. After I quit working on Robot Kachaks, I started working with Dan O'Bannon on a script that he was going to direct called The Men, about a woman who discovers that all men are aliens. And I worked with Dan for kind of almost a year on it, I think. And then finally, when I got it financed, he kind of, he, he bailed it. He, quit, he didn't want to do it. And it was different. I mean, he was a odd person. Dan O'Bannon is a very um, creative person. He's the guy who 
you know, basically wrote Alien and, you know, brought Giger into it. And and he directed Return of the Living Dead, if you remember. He's really great. But he was also like a paranoid crazy. And so the idea that he, you know, him bailing out at the last minute on the deal was um, right when we were signing, we were going to sign all the deals. It was shocking. It was like kind of a shock, but it also wasn't that. I mean, it was not something that anybody had ever worked with Dan would be too surprised at, if you know what I mean. It's not like it was like a steady Freddy, you know, doing something way out of character. Dan was not a predictable guy. He was very creative and unpredictable guy. But anyway, that project was was about a had a great deal of paranoia to it. It was sort of a paranoia story about a, a woman. So I had already built this whole thing up in my mind because I helped scheme up the story with him. It was his original idea. And around that time, a friend of mine, Keith Wally, who had been a sales agent at Empire, had split off to make his own company that was being financed. He's a Brit, and it was being financed by another Brit who lived in Tokyo named Paul White. And at that time, in the early to mid-80s, Japan was like just money bags. They were killing it everywhere. And so he was able to finance a production, a company called Wild Street Pictures, using Japanese company investments. And Keith Wally was going to run the company in L.A. And I was friends with Keith. He stayed at my house while I went to Rome to make dolls and from beyond. So we were friends. And I, they were doing these really cheap movies, kind of the way... Kind of the way, you know, similar to what Charlie was doing when I first met him, except that Charlie was a bit was more experienced because Charlie's father was in the movie business. So Charlie grew up in the movie business. So I was really excited about that. And I would I was trying to get involved. I'd go to the sets of these little movies they were making and tried to help them, you know, um, advise them and stuff. And then I made the deal with them to that they could finance Bride of Reanimator, the Reanimator sequel. At that time, I wanted to direct. So I told, and I always had heard that, well, I was, I thought that it would be very, um, it would be very um, dangerous that if the movie didn't work, you know, a French distributor once told me that in France, they would always say that a first time director was usually making two movies in one, his first and his last. (laughs) <laughs> because that's kind of the way it is. Most people get one shot, you know? And so I thought, wow, if I'm, I have no training. I've never taken a film class in my life. All I've done is produce and read books. And so I thought, well, you know, if I'm not any good, if I fumble out of the gate, I want a second chance. I don't want it to be an all or nothing. So I told him, yeah, um, I've got, you know, I'll, I'll let you guys finance the Reanimator sequel, which had real value. Um, if, um, but I want it, I wanted to produce and direct it and write it, and I want to, but I want to do two movies, and I want that one to be the second one. So I made a deal that I would direct a movie, and then I would direct Bride of Reanimator. So that way, I figured even if the first movie 
failed, I still got another chance. So that was a very kind of uh, a risk-adverse sort of way to go into it. And a, a guy gave me a script. I mean, this was still while I was, I was still working. I forget. I think I was still working over it. I think I was still just in the ends of dealing with um, robot jocks. I forget. But anyway, uh, this guy, Rick Fry, kind of chased me down and gave me a script called Society that he had written with Woody Key. It was really paranoid. And it just, I was just coming off of, of the um, Dan O'Bannon thing, and where I was totally involved for months in this whole paranoia kind of the men thing. And so I already had that, I was already into that, that paranoia thing. And that's what this script did from the get go. It's this weird paranoia thing of this guy who thinks his parents are up to something, and it's all very twisted. and and I really liked it, but it didn't have, at the end, it ended up being a blood cult, which I, I wanted something with special effects. I, I just thought, man, if it's going to be my movie, I want something weirder than, than a blood cult, kids getting killed, you know. I was always really into effects, so I loved, at that time, like Nightmare on Elm Street or the the howling, those kind of effects. So I thought I imagined what I'd like to see that I hadn't seen. I imagined like the flesh melding together. And so I started developing that idea. At the same time, the um, Japanese asked that I meet Screaming Mad George, who was in L.A. making special effects. Um, he had done a big sequence for one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets, the Roach Motel, I think. And they asked if I'd meet him and maybe he could do some of the effects because he, he's Japanese and kind of they knew about him or knew him. And so I went to meet him and he was this incredibly original surrealist artist, sculptor. And I have always been, I studied art when I was in North Carolina and was a painter at one time. And I loved surrealism. And he was crazy for it. And we just went to his house and started watching, you know, Andalusian Dog and looking through Dali books and started developing the uh, the images for society. And then I would go and I'd sit with Woody Keith and Rick Fry uh, late into the nights and we would come up with, we kind of adapted the script so that the ending wasn't a blood cult, but it was the shunting. And so we came up with the shunting. And meanwhile, I was working with um, George to come up with the images of it. And so we'd get the images and go back to the script. And we picked certain, uh, mostly we picked images from Dali paintings for the sculpture of the shunning. And also using just stuff George came up with, you know. And I tried to engineer it into the story so it had a kind of a coherence. And that's how it all sort of it all sort of came together. It was financed by the Japanese through Paul White into his company in L.A. called Wild Street, and so that was the that's how I got into that. Why the shunting? I've always been curious about that. If I'm not mistaken, I think Woody Keith came up with that term. He was a really really crazy guy. That script is kind of it's kind of a weird. <laughs> kind of a alternate 
reality autobiographical story for him. Woody Keith grew up in Beverly Hills with a very wealthy family that he thought was, and he's a little unbalanced and, you know, and he's very creative and he thought they were, he always imagined the worst, that there was this weird secret world going on. And he has a very, a very kind of twisted sense of irony that I also have. I mean, I love stuff that's ironic and satirical and layers of sort of alternate meanings and stuff. And and so we just had a great time working with the script. And and I think when we started talking about it, I for, I mean, I couldn't say for sure who came up with that term, but I'm, I'm going to guess it was Woody. I, it just seemed to fit as a shunt. I mean, it just there's something dirty about it, about that term. Shunting really means, in medical terms, I think it means like you kind of, if you shunt a vein, you you kind of stick something in it to take it in another tube, you know. But it had nothing to do with that. There's just something about the sound of it that seemed right. My mythology for the for the shunt is that this other species that has you know, in my mind, it all started like, let's say, the beginning of Space Odyssey, except instead of a monolith that some nasty parasite crawled out of the ground <laughs> and infected some of the cavemen and the ones that infected, it's a parasite. Sort of takes over the body and they can they find that they can dominate the, the rest of the group. And then they intermarry. And they're the ones that exploit everybody in every society in every part of history. But they, because of the intermarriages, they become kind of almost literal blue bloods, you know. Of course, the fun here is that we make it a sci-fi thing, right? It's real. They're really, they're not even, they're more than a different species. They're a different class. So it's all very satirical. It's all very kind of funny and fun. It's kind of just sort of a having fun with with ideas that aren't particularly insightful, but giving them a playing them out in a untwisted, disgusting kind of way. You know, I'm not sure that you could. You know, at the time, I I really it was hard to call society a horror movie because that doesn't quite fit my definition of horror, and I'm a big horror fan. Because, you know, it wasn't really like horror. It, was, I don't know, it kind of goes into sci-fi. It's kind of a, almost like, I think George, screaming at George and I used to call it psychofiction. It's like when you take your paranoia and make it real. You know, you just give reality. Sort of like expressionism. That it's more about, you know, what you see is how you should feel. Or the form you give something is kind of your interpretation of the story, not you know, it's more like having a good time with the material. But it was, uh, you know, it was definitely a collaborative effort. Certainly, I would say, you know, Woody Keith and Rick Fry and Screaming Mad George and myself. It's kind of three witches at the, at the brew. Well, what was that experience like for you to be sitting in that director's chair and be making your first film? Oh, I loved it. Almost anybody that works on a movie, on a movie set, I think at one time or another, you look at the director and you kind of go, I'd like to do that. Because the director gets to make all these arbitrary choices. 
and everybody listens to him. And everything he does seems so important. If you go to the restroom, somebody's running along with you with the radio telling everybody, you know, you know, you can make all these arbitrary decisions. They're showing you props and colors for the set. You're picking locations and actors and you're setting up the shots. And so everything, you have all these people doing what you ask for. You know, anybody who's worked on a set generally feel like, gee, I'd like to try that. It can be easy to lose confidence. So some people can't just get bogged down. The pressure on the director is huge. And so you're one of the few people who can't just leave it on the set, go home and rest. And when things aren't going well, which means you're not getting your day, not making your day, you know, the pressure is really great. And there's so many um, variables that how you get it all to work together. Often it's not within your power, but you are expected to, to, to have it within your power. And so it can be really, really a miserable experience. And on a lot of most movies, you know, about halfway through, you're just at a point where you just can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But on Society, as my first movie, I never felt like that. I just felt total enthusiasm and like this was the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> I, got, I just had a great, I just had a ton of fun. I mean, it was just wonderful. Plus, even while we were shooting Society, setting up for the shunt, the Dodgers, you know, were winning the World Series. So I was on the radio. You know, it was like the best of all worlds. Billy Warlock was in almost every scene in the film. How was he like to work with? Well, Billy is great. I saw him a few years ago. You know, the movie was not well received at all, not in the U.S. It really dumped on. It got terrible reviews in the U.S. But in England, it was quite a, a big hit, but it was a regular hit there and very well received. And it was also well-received in, like, France and Spain and Italy. Um, but back then, there was no Internet. So you didn't really know what was going on. Somebody could tell you something. Billy told me he went to England to do, I forget for what. And he, when he got out into the airport, there were photographers and reporters because of the time. He was, like, shocked. Because here, even my friends kind of didn't like it, you know. I thought it was going to be number one at the box office. But, but then again, I was delusional. I just thought it was so great. that. Um, but it's hard to accept that your taste. It's hard for me to accept that my taste is not the mainstream taste. That what I think is really great, most people don't like. You know, it's you're, you're, you're really lucky to have the taste of Steven Spielberg, for example. <laughs> You know, where, where what he likes, we all like, you know, which is great. But if you're like me, what I like, it's a very, it's a very marginal, um, I have a marginal kind of audience. Even within genre back then, society wasn't very well accepted. And it, but what's, what was really interesting was that almost 20 years later, it started becoming rediscovered. And now it's got, it's like better, it's more popular 
right now than it was ever before. <laughs> you know, I, I own the movie, so I, I do, you know, I, people contact me for screenings all the time from all around the world. And wow, it's like at least a couple times a month, I get people who want to screen it. And that's amazing because the movie is like 30 years old. Yeah, 30 years old this year. That's incredible. You know, when I was, first time I ever saw, when I was kind of a teenager, 30 years ago was silent movies. You know, that's how, that's how weird it is. 30 years is a long time. So that's pretty amazing. And that's really gratifying. I think I know kind of why it's working, but it definitely has become, like you asked me about it, right? Maybe 20 years ago, you wouldn't ask me about it. You would ask me about something else. And Billy Warlock, when I saw him recently, uh, recently, like a few years ago, because I never saw him much. I, I don't think I, you know, I worked with him, and then I, you know, we had a rap party, and I don't know that I ever saw him again. And he told me that he said, you know, it's only been recently that he said when I was, we were making that movie, I had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> And I realized that probably almost none of the actors did, but I do know that Evan Richards did. Evan Richards would play Milo. He's done some pretty good movies, and I've and he was living in England because I would I saw him a couple times when I was I would be at the airport flying to through London or something, and he'd be on the same plane or something. And Evan was so enthusiastic about it; he was just so. You know, every time I've, over the years, I've seen him every few years or something accidentally. And he, he, I think he got, he was totally, you know, got it. But I don't think Billy ever, I don't think he did until many years later when it started having this renewed interest by a, a, a kind of younger generation. Well, why do you think that is? Why do you think it does have this long standing popularity and why has it gotten so much more popular recently? When it was released here, I don't think I don't think the poster ever. They used the same poster from England, and it kind of looked like an art movie. I think that put people off, and the, the key art. So the new that when the the Arrow Blu-ray collector's edition came out, they did new art, which made you look at as a horror fan. You go, I gotta see it. I've heard of it. I've got to see it. There's a lot of movies people have heard of that they haven't seen and talk about them, but they actually haven't seen them. Then the other thing was that um, I think the whole, you know, the movie was kind of having fun with a kind of this sort of political thing and um, like class exploitation. And it was made during the Reagan era. It was kind of a response to that. Well, at that time, that was the time of greed is good. And people, I don't think it was really a message. People, I mean, it wasn't kind of a context that was very comfortable. Whereas when it started getting popular again was sort of when the the Great Recession happened, when all of a sudden the economy collapsed and people started looking at the 1% and stuff. And then they thought, oh, this movie is kind of like that. And whereas in England, they've always been you know, beating the, the class thing to death. And so I think they loved that, having fun with that idea, you know, the idea that their rich people are different. The other thing is that I think the first-time director awkwardness of the movie with some of the acting and stuff, I think that 
back then maybe was seen for what it was, and now when people look at it, they they don't forgive it. They just don't understand it. They think, oh, that's the 80s, because there's goofy stuff about the 80s. And so they, just like when we watch a an old Japanese, you know, we watched a J-horror, you know, The Ring or something, the Japanese version, and we watch these Japanese horror movies, these ghost movies, you know, with the girl with the hair hanging in front of her eyes coming down the hall or something. And, you know, we we love them for how weird and scary they are. And then, but if you point out that, wow, that's really illogical, why would she do that? Then the response will be, oh, that's the Japanese, you know? And it really isn't the Japanese culture. It is, but it's just illogical. <laughs> but, but we forgive it for that. And I think that with with society, once now there's this appreciation for all things 80s, the jazz, you know, the goofy clothes and all that kind of stuff. So that style of 80s, I mean, society was done in the kind of in the context of a high school comedy almost, right? The, the, the look of the kid, you know, except for when it gets dark, it's like the kid at school and the girlfriend. And, the, you know, it was like any one of these high school comedy things. And now I think when people look at it, they think, oh, that's the 80s. So they appreciate it in a way that maybe is very forgiving. And then I think ultimately the shunting and the, you know, the concept of it, and especially the shunting, those effects were never done again. So the movie has, it's, it's not a seminal movie in any way. It's a movie that sort of stands alone. And so, if, you know, I was just, for example, watching American Werewolf in London the other day, see how it holds up. And, you know, that movie won the first makeup effects Oscar. And it's, you know, you it's basically, you know, it's appliances, gore appliances. And you look at it and you go, wow, that was new back then. It was shot. It was really, it was really different back then. But everybody did it again and again, and even better. I mean, it got, you know, the, you could end up with the thing, you know, John Carpenter's the thing, all the nightmare on Elm Street. And everybody was doing these kind of weird gore puppet effects. And they were done a lot. And so, you know, it's like looking at Halloween. If you look at Halloween, it's hard to imagine how original that movie was when it came out. When it came out, it was like super original. Well, after you've had Halloween, Nightmare on and Friday the 13th and, you know, Happy Birthday and, and Prom Night. You know, you have all, all these slasher movies based on Halloween. Halloween doesn't seem so special anymore. Whereas with society, nobody ever did those kinds of effects again and never will now because it's all digital now. So nobody's there. It's just like nobody's ever going to make stop motion like Harryhausen again. You'll forever be the best. Because it'll never be, it, it's never going to be necessary. There's going to be better ways to do it. And um, with the effects of springing at George's effects in the movie, there's a sense of it, um, you, we haven't seen that again. And so it's, it's, it's really an eye-opener. And also just what happens in it is kind of outrageous and strong. And, so, and 
that's a that's a function of the fact that I was dealing with the financing of it didn't put any requirements on the movie. You know, the movies are a reflection of the, of their financing. So if a studio, for example, had made it, it would have been watered down a lot, you know, where, where we, the money came from, from Japan. The Paul White was the guy who got the money and he just sent it over to Woody Key and nobody was around to tell, to say, no, you can't do this. I did whatever I wanted. Generally, that's been the case. I mean, I've had that experience a number of times, but it depends more on what the company is, you know, who's paying for it and what they expect. And I think that that, that was, uh, for example, when you talk about reanimator and people say it's so outrageous and everything. Well, you know, I was the guy paying for it ultimately, and I wanted it to be outrageous. And I didn't have to, no, I didn't have to go to anybody to see if I could do something crazy. I could just do it. And I know that with society, you know, when I was doing the shunning, I just thought I was king of the world. I was thinking, wow, I get to do this. And I could do whatever I wanted. You know, nobody was, I didn't have to show it to anybody and have them say, oh, no, I think you shouldn't do this. You should go this way. The main thing that, Keith Wally, the producer, wanted is when he, we were going through the script, he said, man, I, I think you need a one-to-one fight in this thing. You need a, a duel at the end. And so we, we made a duel between Billy and the bad guy. Well, he was absolutely right. But, you know, it's not like he said you have to, and nor did he say how to do it. He was just saying he was just kind of throwing in on on the process but it wasn't like there was a um, somebody you know there was a studio saying hey you, you can't put this incest stuff in there you can't have these kinds of um you know you've got to pull back on the on it, it nobody did that and so society has that freewheeling kind of feeling to it that today i think people are surprised by what are you working on these days? I, you know, I've been trying to get involved with a lot of these small movies with these kind of emerging directors around town. I sometimes um, I have a partner and we'll sometimes be like producers, reps on small movies. You've done so many amazing films. I Return of the Living Dead Part 3 is one of my favorites that I don't think nearly enough people have seen. Yeah, that that one is, you know, it's a little bit like society, except that it's not a, it's not kind of so weird and different like society, you know? It's like pretty mainstream type of zombie movie. But it is a movie that just never gets its due, because it really looks good. It's really good. But I think one of the problems with that movie is that it doesn't have a title. So once you, you know, really complicated, it's not like it, it's kind of Return of the Living Dead already as a sequel title, because it's the Living Dead. So when you do Return of the Living Dead, you're already in the sequel now. Then to give it a part three, then you're, then you can't give it a subtitle, you know? It's really, it just does, and the thing that the, it was all based on the, you know, that whole deal was based on the title. 
when the you know when I was um, when Trimark was the company that financed it, produced it, or you know financed it, and then I produced it for them. They just wanted. They asked if I would do. We didn't have a script. They asked if I would do if I would make the movie, and I said sure because I liked both. You know, kind of like the Night of the Living Dead stuff, and I love the Dan O'Bannon EC Comics Return of the Living Dead. So those are two great things to be. You know, I love those those um, franchises. Or I don't know that Return of the Living Dead wasn't a franchise because the second one didn't really work. But um, the um, but we started by interviewing writers, and I went into it just with the idea that I wanted the main char- a main character to be uh, living dead. I wanted the main character to be. And part of that was because after doing Bride of Reanimator, I realized that the bride was the best character in it. And she was only on screen for like 15 minutes or something, 20 minutes. And I thought, God, what a shame, you know? And I thought, next time I want that kind of character to be the whole the movie. And, um, and the, um, so that was my, and plus I thought that even back then, imagine 1990, 91, it seemed like there had just been too many zombie movies. So what, what can you do that hasn't been done? Of course, now imagine, but, and so that was another reason to say, well, make the zombie be the main character. Don't, you know, don't, um, you know, just turn the point of view around. And um, so that was that was my approach. And then I interviewed, got pitches from a lot of different um, um, writers. And um, and the one I liked was John Penny. And 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 um, Trimark agreed, you know, Trimark had to approve everything in that case. And um, the. um and John is actually my partner now in these producers' reps deals and stuff. And um, the um, so he was great because he already had this idea of a of a kind of a Romeo and Juliet type story built into a a military use of the living dead as as soldiers. And um, God, it was just a real. I mean, we from his pitch and um, developed his script from there. And, you know, it's been probably the movie that I've, that I've made or certainly that I've directed that ended up the most like what was planned from the beginning. There was very little about that movie that was like, let's see what happens. You know, like they say, most movies are like a, in a, a discovery. You you discover what the movie is as you go along. Well, with Return of the Dead Three, I think I had I had just about I had just about every scene in the movie all storyboarded. The storyboards were adapted to the set to the locations once we found them. I think there's only one scene that I purposely didn't storyboard, which was the um, which was the um, scene in the convenience store. And I didn't, I wanted that one to be kind of improvised on the, on the, at the location. And I think it worked out real well. And I think the very end was a little, 
was a little sloppy in the, when all the hell broke loose. But in general, it was um, it was very. It, it, we never went over. We never had a problem with doing things within the time. It was really a well-run production, and I thought it really worked well. I thought, well, Mindy Clark was so good in it as the as the um, Dooley, as the zombie, and you know all the different um, secondary characters were great. So that movie, I thought, really has a lot of heart. You know, has a lot of heart by the end of it, and it's uh, I think it's one of the better zombie movies one of the top 10, you know? That's another one where just the makeup effects on Melinda Clark are so great. Yeah, that was Steve Johnson. You know, we had like five or six different makeup effects teams on that movie. And, you know, which has always been, it kind of was the philosophy I kind of early on developed about effects, which kind of runs counter to what most low-budget um filmmakers that have to use effects think. Usually there's this idea that that you should take what little money you have and give it all to one company so it'll amount to something, so it'll seem like more and have them do everything because they feel like you can't just, if you divide it up, it's going to get too small. But I've always gone, I've always thought that different companies and different effects artists have different strengths. And you don't want to get Screaming Mad George to do gore effects, for example. That's not his. That's not his strength, you know. He needs to do weird stuff. And then some people are. And then so everybody has different types of stuff they can do. And I had a effects. I usually have an effects coordinator or supervisor. Um, and on this case, I had a guy named Tom Renoni, and he was really into it. And he was the one that would interface with all the effects guys. And we, what we did is we broke the effects out into certain into certain groups of effects that fit together. So, and then find the adequate person to do it. And some effects you can get. There's no reason to hire a big time artist or a big time company because it's not that difficult an effect. And they're not going to be very challenged by it. But if you get some young guy that's never gotten a credit before or is just trying to get his company going, well, they will put their all into it because they need to showcase their work. And this is a big chance for it. So they will go way overboard. And the the, the, the cost is not going to be the determining factor. Whereas if you go to a, to a big company like uh, – like, um, KMV or something, well, they do every, you know, there's nothing you're going to give them that's going to be a big, a big challenge. <laughs> you know, they're, they're like the industry standard type of thing. But Tom Renoni, even, you know, the river man in his metal cage, exoskeleton, we, um, Renoni got this guy that, um, that, didn't really do effects. He was like a welder. So he made real steel frame. It was because it was cutting into poor, um, I forget the name of the actor now, but Riverman was suffering. And, um, you know, because it would cut into him. So normally the way you would do that is 
you would carve the pieces and um, and then make a mold and then core the mold with foam latex or hard latex and then you know take it out and sand it down and paint it to look like steel you know but it it all ends up looking the same when you do that but that's what these what most effects companies know how to do it back in the 80s and um so by actually getting this guy to make this iron exoskeleton wow it really changed the whole dynamic for the actor <laughs> he couldn't um no, he had to really take it slowly. And so that's, that's a, a choice that wouldn't have been typical. And then with somebody like Julie, I knew that I needed like a top, top um, makeup effects artist for that. It couldn't be like a new company or a young guy. It had to be somebody that was really an excellent um, makeup person. And so on that one, we got Steve Johnson to do her. And Steve Johnson is a really big-time effects guy, hugely successful. And um, so he's the one that did her. And once we designed her, um, you know, he's the one that painted her, that made her applications and painted her. So it always looked really good, you know. And then some of the effects we even did on the fly. The art department just did them when I just come up with something you know, for the next day, and everybody's budget was already out. I figured, hey, the art department's still on it, and they want to show their stuff. So it was a, um, you know, I think the effects really worked in that movie, and they're fun. It's a, I mean, I tried to make the effects. I tried really hard on that movie to make the mythology of it fit the fit the Rivero and the Dan O'Bannon versions, because if you remember. Well, with the original Romero, it wasn't like an infection. It, I mean, it wasn't like if you got bit, you turned into a zombie. That's what we came to believe um, by the proximity of it. But actually, in the Dan O'Bannon version, when you die, you would come back. And remember, in Dawn of the Dead, the poster tagline was, when hell is full, the dead will walk the earth. But that idea has, um, you know, the idea of zombies, um, kind of the the adaptation of the kind of, you know, Caribbean zombies to the, to, you know, you know, the modern world, which I think was start, which really hit the big turning point was Romero's Night of the Living Dead was that, uh, and was that, you know, there was this idea that these were soulless, <laughs> walking flesh, and um, and on and you know the idea, the explanation that when hell is full, the dead will walk the earth is a totally different idea from the what really kind of caught fire with um, Twenty Eight Days Later, which was that it's just a it's an infection. And that's what it's become. Now, now zombie movies or walking dead movies, they're all about fear of like a plague, you know, fear of other people. It's I think one of the best examples of this is if you look at the um evil dead and then look at the the neo version of it from the two thousands 
called Cabin Fever. Um, the Evil Dead, it was like a demon possessing people. Kids in the, go get the cabin in the woods and find them, you know, and then this demon possesses them. And it's just, you know, they're supernatural kind of killings. Well, when the cabin fever was made, it was teenagers renting the cabin. But this time the cabin was a nice lodge on the lake that you actually imagine wanting to vacation at. Whereas all the cabins in the woods from like Evil Dead and stuff like that, you could never imagine. It's like, oh, let's go stay in that crappy cabin, you know, that's terrible. But with cabin fever now, it's sort of the same as Evil Dead, except that it's just a sickness. They're afraid of the people because the people are sick and they're going to catch it. And I think that's more of the modern fear and the, you know, Dawn of the Dead and evil dead and things like that. It was just kind of more, it was more supernatural. It was more threatening. And it wasn't just like, oh, I've got AIDS or I'm sick and now you're going to be sick. And well, we better kill him because he's sick. And I think that's more the kind of, you know, that has more to do with the fears that we have today than, you know, back in the 60s and 70s. It was a little more, it was a different type of, um, it was more supernatural type of genre, I think. But the, um, so George Romero's was that if you shot it in the head and you kill the brainstem, the thing will just can't move, right? Biological. Whereas with Dan O'Bannon, I think Return of the Living Dead was the first movie to actually capture the look and the tone and the humor and the and the horror of the old EC comics, which I used to actually buy when I was a kid in the 50s. And if you've ever read the EC comics, you know, there's always somebody eating a brain, and there's always revenge, you know, people are, there's always sex, and it's always really gory, but in, a, in kind of a technicolor kind of way. And um, it's fun and ironic and, the, and horrific, you know. But the... Um, and, you know, we know that, you know, Creepshow was trying to do a EC Comics type of of comic book horror. And it was always a little bit too clean and simple, you know. It was always a little, it didn't really capture the spirit of it. But with Return of the Living Dead, wow, that was it. It was just, you know, Dan O'Bannon knew that, you eat brains, you, you know, you, um, shooting somebody in the head doesn't matter. Their hands kind of crawl around, you know? So that's totally different from the, um, from the, from the um, Romero. Plus in the O'Bannon version, if you bite somebody, they get infected and they will change. Because remember, those guys are changing through the third act of the movie, getting thicker and thicker. And um, so there's really two different, um, two different mythologies, two different styles. And quite frankly, when I was going to make Return of the Living Dead 3, um, usually I'm very, um, I'm very, well, not, sometimes I'm really focused on making a sequel. I've done a lot of sequels, you know, focused on making a sequel really kind of fit the, the originals, 
you know, so with Reanimator, I'm really critical about the mythology of it and making sure it makes sense within it. First, within with um, Return the Living Dead three, I'm not sure why, but maybe it was because the second Return of the Living Dead didn't. Um, they tried to make somehow they tried to make it funny like the first one with the same characters, and it just it just sort of went flat. And it didn't work. So that really at that point, the franchise didn't have much value. And I was just, I was excited to try to make it kind of, kind of bridge the gap or dovetail with the Romero version, basically, you know, um, Dawn of the Dead. And, um, And when I asked Trimark what the requirements for the movie were before we developed the script, I asked if it had to be funny. They said no, and I said, "Does it have to um, have any of the same characters? No. Have to have any of the same actors? No. Um, well, what does it? What do you require? What are the requirements?" And they said, "Well, it has to have the trioxin gas, and there has to be brain eating. That's the two things." So I didn't. Somehow I didn't. Usually I try to make things ironic and and kind of funny, but. In this, I really, it wasn't funny, and it wasn't even really ironic, although there was some funny bits, you know, with the overdone, um, there's some overdone effects, like the guy with his spine holding his head up. Um, that's kind of a, I mean, that's a funny effect, you know, and it fits the Dan O'Bannon thing, you know what I mean? I mean, that was sort of that, you know, Dan O'Bannon had the tarman, you know, it was fun, you know, um, and then he had the really horrific stuff like the the dead woman on the table, you know, um, saying that it hurt. So I tried to make the mythology fit both of those movies, and um, and have the the eye popping kind of EC Comics kind of visuals that that um, Dan O'Bannon had. But I thought that, and then John Penny. Where it kind of brought this whole kind of kind of um, emotional love story to it, so it ended up being a kind of it was like a horror movie with a really kind of heartfelt love story at the middle. Thank you so much again for your time. I really appreciate this. Okay, doke. Well, let me know if I can help you any further.
but we are back and we were talking about society. So yeah, I was reminded of quite a few other movies while I was watching this. And the other, the other one that I didn't mention before was uh, Rosemary's Baby. And that whole idea of like the coven and the secrecy and just like Rosemary seems to be the only one who's not in on it. There have been great conspiracy type films before, but I've never seen a conspiracy as widespread as the one in society because almost everybody is in on it. Like, it's just like, what, three, three characters, I think, in this entire film that don't seem to be in on it, you know, and everybody else, I guess some of the kids in the auditorium, but every other major character that we meet, even the cops are all part of this, this cabal. Yeah. It's almost like there's a few people left and they're just basically the food. Yeah. Rosemary's baby's a good, I didn't really think of that as, as far as a a comparison, but the fact that it it's, it very slowly builds, the paranoia builds, and then it all you know c- comes to a head with in Rosemary's Baby. It's when she goes into the uh, the apartment and the you know the crib is there, and they're all worshiping Satan. Not quite as visceral as the uh, the shunting, but kind of kind of a similar build up. And and as far as that level of paranoia goes, yeah, I mean for me, it's totally unrelated to the movie, but it just show, it's one of those kind of rich people being weird movies. Came out the same year as this one. Scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills, Paul Bartel's movie, with Jacqueline Bissett and Ed Begley Jr. and Wallace Shawn and Paul Mazursky. Um, it kind of had a little bit of the same feel that rich people are weird and like the um, like society. It's a funny movie. They do make such a point in society. Like he starts calling them aliens and they're just like, no, 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 we're not aliens. And he still keeps calling them aliens anyway. <laughs> and he's just, no, no, really. We're not aliens, and that they reveal that they've been part of you know mankind basically from the beginning, and they make a reference to when they're talking about Turd Ferguson that he comes like his lineage goes all the way back to the time of Julius Caesar. So it's like, wow, okay, these guys have been with us for a long, long time, and they just apparently they just feed off of the poor, however often they feel the need, and you know they are all of these people that are in power, they are the upper crust of our society. So yeah, this is a perfect movie in the time of Trump where we just, you know, I heard a, some statistic the other day that it was like 1% of the population in the U S is the, uh, controls 36% of the wealth of the entire nation. It's just like, wow, that's, that's, uh, some pretty good numbers. I think that was the day that they announced that Jeff Bezos is now, the richest person is since they've been measuring rich persons <laughs> like ever since they've kind of figured out how much people could make and all this that he's now at the top of the list well another movie that society has always reminded me of is they live which you know came out i think right around was it the same year 89 and that's another movie that's very sort of came out in an era that was very politically divisive and you know it's uh, that movie as well is about the secret society of you know, the rich kind of feeding off the poor. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see whether we get more movies like that in the current era as well, whether it's going to be permitted by, say, larger studios to make a political satire kind of movie or, or whether that's going to be too divisive and so people back away from it because of the social media backlash. They're too busy making superhero movies. That's all that gets made now. <laughs> There's no room for political satire. We need a good left-wing superhero. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, this is such a reaction to the Reagan 80s, moving into the the George Bush early part of the 90s. You know, uh, American Psycho, uh, the book, would come out two years after this. And I want to say that this movie, it was made in 89, but then didn't really get released, or as some people would say, it escaped in 92. So it there was that period of time but i think it played it probably should have played as well in 92 as it did in 89 luckily it wasn't a huge gap just because we were still in like the george bush era of this george bush the first that is i should say yeah it's it is in a sense it is a very political movie even though it's all we remember as a shunting there is a kind of edge to it that uh, a lot of Movies of the time, particularly horror movies, kind of veered away from. They were kind of apolitical to a big extent, but this one definitely is about class warfare. Yeah, George Romero was doing political horror kind of around this time, yeah. and yeah, I, I, it makes me think. Of, although I don't think it's a particularly good movie, I would compare it also to Land of the Dead, which mm-hmm. he did obviously, you know, a couple decades later. But that's another one where the satire is not uh, particularly subtle. Um, I don't think it works as well as it does in society just because it's, it's on the nose, but it's not, it, that's all it is. It's not, you know, entertaining as like a movie on its own. Um, but, but similar kind of, you know, class warfare going on. Yeah. My head actually hurt after land of the dead. Cause he just beat me about the, the head and, neck <laughs> and shoulders, but I don't know. Did you, did you get what it was about? Did you get it? Subtle as a Robert Redford film. When <laughs> when Dennis Hopper said we don't negotiate with terrorists, did you get it? <laughs> R- R.I.P. George Romero. <laughs> and Dennis Hopper, yeah. It was kind of like in, uh, I think it was the third Star Wars movie, you're either with us or against us. I was like, oh, okay, yeah. I've heard that somewhere before, okay. Was that, oh, oh yeah, you're talking about the prequels, yeah. Sorry, I should have said number three as opposed to number six. <laughs> Episode yeah. three. That numbering system just drives me nuts. You know, I did mention the thing earlier and even mentioned Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This kind of reminds me more of the 78 uh, Body Snatchers than the, what, 56 one. I guess it's that that squelching noise that we hear on the tape and then we hear it again later on. It's It almost has like insect overtones to it in the way that they use those insect noises, especially in the thing, um, so effectively to... I mean, it, it's a it's a natural noise, like the noise of a cicada, but it just it puts you on edge, and that it, it fits with otherworldliness and the squelching noises that we hear on the tape and then in person. They just it's you know we talk about the visuals of this film so much, but the sound design is actually very nicely done to uh, give us the the heebie-jeebies. What that reminded me of, and I, I watched this recently for my podcast, is the original version of The Fly, where he's got the thing over his head and he's drinking the um, sugar-laced milk underneath the hood. And you've got that slurping, squelching noise there, and it's incredibly effective then. And it kind of reminded me of that a bit. Yeah, I noticed also uh, the the scene where where Bill is uh, in bed with Clarissa and he you know falls out of bed and we see her with the backwards legs or whatever. There's there's insect noises playing over that, even though it doesn't seem to be motivated by anything, but it just it's there and it just sort of adds that extra level of kind of creepiness to it. And Jay, you mentioned uh, parents, and I could totally see that while I was watching this too. That whole idea of we don't know who our parents are, who are these people, how weird are they, and that they end up being you know, cannibals. And the one movie makes 
total sense. And then this, you know, it's like that whole idea of like, oh, I was adopted. I don't know who my parents are, blah, blah, blah. And then that that is literally the truth in this is, yeah, you were adopted and we basically adopted you so that we can consume your body after 18 years. Fantastic. Yeah, in both movies, it's like you, you know, that paranoia of you feel like an outsider in your own house, like you don't even have that sense of comfort. And I saw I saw parents before I saw society again when I was 10 or 11 years old. So uh, I don't think I realized how funny parents was until years later, because the first time I saw it, it, it really disturbed me. Yeah. And that taps really into kind of the insecurity that a lot of kids have as teenagers and that, you know, they don't fit in anywhere. And so. Uh, or even younger. And so people wonder, everybody I suppose has wondered whether they were adopted at some stage. I mean, in my case, I hoped I was, but, <laughs> but, but every kid has that insecurity about who they are and, and where they come from and whether they're going to live up to the expectations put upon them and putting it into the movie kind of gives it just that little bit of a lift. Though, of course the movie is about the shunt. <laughs> Yeah, and there's that line, I think it was Rousseau or somebody who said, uh, you know, like, when there's nothing else to eat, you know, the poor will eat the rich. But this film totally reminds me of more of a a Jonathan Swift type thing with the modest proposal where it's just like, oh, well, you know, I know how to solve the problems. Why don't we just have the poor people sell us their children so we can eat them? Because that is very much, you know, what this movie is playing upon is that whole idea of, like, yeah, the poor are just there. They are just cattle for us to eat and to enjoy, and we will, you know, live off the fat of the land. And the whole thing with the judge, with this big fat cigar and all this kind of stuff. I'm surprised that more characters weren't more corpulent in this film. It feels like it. It would have like there's that idea of you know being young and beautiful and pretty, which a lot of these characters are. Uh, but then as they get older, you know, kind of looking more like looking more like the, uh, you know, the guy who runs Bullet Town or the guy that runs, what is it, like Wartown or whatever in the uh, in the, the Mad Max Fury Road, like that guy with the huge elephantine legs and stuff, you know, just feels like like a Baron Harkonnen type of a character where it's just like, I am so fat. I don't have to move and I can just do anything that I want. You know, it's, and I guess that kind of reminds me going back to the Trump comparisons, you know, it's just like, Oh, I put a, put a suspender belt on him and he's off, you know, floating around and laughing like a madman. In some ways, Trump's an anomaly because in our societies, being fat is not a sign of wealth. It's a sign of poverty. So we've got to kind of turn around from the traditional all through history. The rich people were fat, you know, Henry VIII and people like that. But in our societies, because the quality of food is so much less for poor people, poor people are fat and rich people on the whole, with Trump as the exception, are thin. I went too deep there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Kim, Kim Jong-un, he could, he could lose a little bit of weight. I worry about his health sometimes. He's the only person know? eating in that country, yeah. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. When you've got nothing and you want everything, you've got to get to be the Mac. Being rich and black means something, man. Don't you know that? The Mac. His business is pleasure. He sells the soft stuff. They're going to have to rewrite the Mac and Game book, baby, you know, because I'm going to be the new king. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the big moment we've all been waiting for. The Mac of the year. Goldie! Goldie!
Max Julian is Goldie, and Goldie is the Mac. The Mac, with Richard Pryor, and music by Willie Hutch. The Mac, from Cinerama releasing, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without penalty. Now that you've seen all the rest, make way for the Mac. The biggest and the best. That's right, we'll be back next week with the discussion of the Mac. Can you dig it? Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Terry and Jay. Terry, what is the latest with you these days, sir? I'm still doing Paleo Cinema Podcast, and I'm also doing the Martian Drive-In Podcast, and I'm playing them as a one-man band, as I usually do, and they're going nicely. I've got some ideas. We're going to Japan next year, so I may do a whole bunch of Kurosawa movies in the future and kind of have a look at those and, and just kind of get in the vibe for it. And what's the best place for people to uh, find your stuff? Basically, if you search Paleo Cinema with a dash, Paleo-Cinema, anywhere you'll find the podcast. And Jay, how is the world of Red Letter Media? Oh, it's good. It's busy. It's summer, so it's actually been a, a shockingly uh, bad summer for movies. That's usually when we do a lot of our half in the bags, but we uh, we didn't see Deadpool 2 because I'm sure it's fine. We didn't see Ant-Man because I'm sure it's fine, but uh, we're always working on stuff. So, Did you see Rampage? No, I haven't seen Rampage. I, I can't. I, I, every every movie with The Rock looks the same to me now. It's always like him in a jungle, or or him jumping from a burning building. I can't. I can't distinguish any of them anymore. Um, good point. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure. I'm sure they're all fine. He's got something like ten projects coming up in the near future. It's crazy. He's he's oversaturated the the market. Seven of them are him in the jungle. Except he still won't do like the Doc Savage project. I I don't get that. That would be one I paid to see. Yeah, if they did it as a period piece, I think it would work fantastically well. And Shane Black was attached to do the script. That would have been fantastic. Jay, there's a sequel to Space Cop coming anytime soon. Oh God, no! But no, we're always we're always working on stuff. So we'll uh, we we have more things coming that we haven't uh, we haven't announced yet. Well, thank you guys for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth and society take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.